for the bulk of 2023. And I'm excited about looking at this wonderful and, and complex and powerful book we call Romans. And today is going to be largely introduction, which is what we have in the text itself from Paul's earliest words. Um, I, I'm, my, my barometer on bringing history and background is always my wife, who has little patience with it, okay? So um, she's not sitting here, though. So, <laughs> but I know that not everyone latches on to history very quickly, so I'll, I'll try and keep that to, to an appropriate minimum. But it's also important to understand the, the, the times and the person and the people which the, the scriptures that we have, where did they start? What, did, what and who did Paul have on his heart and mind when he wrote this letter? Yes, guided by the Spirit to become part of the Word of God, but it was also had some practical and important applications for then when he wrote it. And so that's what we're going to look at primarily today. And we mentioned earlier about the Thursday Bible study. Uh, that's something new that we're doing now as well. What we're doing on Sunday is connected with what we look at on Thursday. Because this book, being so deep and complex, I'm not going to pretend to be able to cover every aspect of it on Sunday morning, or even in that attempt, we'd probably be preaching from this for five years. I mean, that's how deep it is. Um, but what I'm doing is, you'll notice in the, the titles are just one word. And so I'm taking one word from each segment of Romans and focusing on that on Sundays, but then we're going to go to the Bible study group on Thursday and look a little bit deeper at the same passage. So together, let's learn what Paul had in mind. And let me give you this kind of summary statement uh, about this book of Romans. The love of God given through Christ is for everyone. This love knew no boundaries as it crossed not only the Roman Empire, but also reached into the empires of Jewish law, of Greek culture, of first century religion, economic systems, and even family structures. Most importantly, this message of love has dared to reach into the heart of every human's personal empire, your world. This is the good news, the best news that the Apostle Paul wrote about with meticulous detail and passionate depth. This is the book of Romans, the letter to the church in Rome. So the title of the entire series is Love Letter to the Empire. And when I say empire, I'm not just referring to the Roman Empire, although that was obvious, Rome being the center of that. There are also other empires in our lives. There are empires... Um, that we work under. There are empires in our families. There are, is that also that personal empire that you have where the sin nature wants to dethrone God or, or take the throne from God and take charge. And so in, in that broadest definition of that word empire, this is what the love of God enters into. And this is what Paul is expressing in these words. So some basic background. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter at about 57 or so AD, give or take a couple of years, to a church he didn't start in a city he had never been to. 
which is unique. Think about all the letters that Paul wrote we have in our New Testament. Uh, Corinthians and Ephesians, um, Galatians, Thessalonians, those places he visited. Those places he started the church in most cases. He came in with, with the help of, of Silas or a Barnabas and others and established a congregation in these cities. And he'd stay there for months, sometimes a couple of years, and then move on and do the same somewhere else. And he did that for decades. Well, Rome, he had never been to. And yet, he was um, passionate and about these people and the church that was meeting in the city of Rome. Who's in the church in Rome? You know, my, I love that phrase, begin with the end in mind, and this fits really well. If you go to the end of the book of Romans, you'll see Paul greets a whole bunch of people. Now, this, is, this also is not uncommon in when Paul writes these letters. He'll get to the end of the letter and say, say hello to this person, and say hi to that person, and greet them, I'm praying for them, which is, you know, a very personal kind of thing to do. It comes right from the heart. In Romans, the list is long. There's 26 names in the last chapter, the 16th chapter of Romans that Paul is sending greetings to. And that's an interesting grouping right there. So when Paul begins this letter, in his mind's eye, in his heart, are these people, among others. There were more a part of the church than just these. These were primarily the leaders of the church in Rome. But those were the people that, that he met, that he knew, that, or he heard about, and wanted to send a greeting to them. It was a word of encouragement. Among those 26, there are Jews who became believers in Jesus. Priscilla and Aquila, we'll touch on them more in a moment. Adronicus, Junia, Herodian, and, and others. There were also Gentiles. Um, I can't say these names either. Epinetus, Urbanus, Narcissus, and others were because they are, they are Greek names. So they were Gentile believers. Interesting also is you have rich people among that group. And the reason we know they're rich is because several of these people hosted church in their house. Now, if you're going to have dozens of people in your house, you have to have a big house. And if you have a big house, you have to have the means to buy and keep up a big house. So there were several among them who were well-to-do enough that they hosted church is. And what's interesting, too, is that you think about he's writing to the church in Rome. So there's this group somewhere they gather. Well, actually, what we see here in the 16th chapter of Romans is that they were gathered in several locations. It wasn't just one. Priscilla and Aquila were among them. Now, you read about them, and again, we'll touch on them in a moment from, from Acts, but um, they were tent makers like Paul. And they had a business, and so their home in Rome was large enough to host. But then there were other locations. Um, one of the most interesting ones is Aristobulus, who some scholars believe was the uh, grandson of Herod the Great. And so his, he had a connection with the Herods. Now, if you know anything about Herods in the New Testament, among other things, they were very rich their family. 
So when you have the church or part of the church meeting at the household of Aristobulus, even just the, the significance of that, there was, you think back of the life of Jesus from, from birth, you had the Herod that did that awful thing with you know, having children killed in Bethlehem, and you have the, the Herod that you know, just kind of didn't step up to help Jesus when he could have when he was under trial, and um, there, was, there was some difficulty with the Herods in general. Now, almost a generation later, there is family of Herod hosting a church. Isn't that, that's, that's really interesting. So there was people that had means and they hosted. So the idea is this. There was throughout the city of Rome, which was probably about 400,000 people, which is a massive city in the ancient world by any measure. So throughout that massive city, there was a home here and a home in that side of town, a home in this section of town, each of them hosting a group of believers, but there was enough connection between them that they were learning together and sharing this letter from Paul because he knew all of them. So it wasn't as if the church in Rome was one spot and they all met there. It was spread out. And Paul was writing to all the believers in Rome. And of course, just in case this is, you didn't realize this, uh, there, there was no church buildings. There would not be for quite a while in Rome or anywhere else. So you had to meet where you could. And so they met primarily in homes. And the last group we see from here is former slaves. Some scholars believe that as many as two-thirds of the names here at the end of Romans were former slaves. In other words, they were freed. There was a process in the Roman Empire for a person to be a former slave. There was usually a financial component to it. You could, you could pay for your freedom. Um, you could, uh, your, your master could release you, but there, there was a process to follow. So at least they had the, the potential or an opportunity, limited as it was, for some to be former and freed slaves. There is evidence of that many of these people from Romans 16, this list, were in that group. So just look at that as a whole now. What do you have in the church in Rome? You have Jews, you have Gentiles, you have rich, you have poor or former slaves at least, a, a mixture of the culture. Isn't that what the church should be? Shouldn't the church anywhere in any city look like a cross-section of your neighborhood, of your community? Look that way racially and economically and in terms of, of the various talents that people bring to the table and, and of course, most importantly, their, their, their gifts that their, the Spirit gives them to, to work in the church, but we need all of that in the church and we see that in this church in Rome. And some scriptural connections then. So, so where, does, where does the book of Romans fit into the historical flow of the New Testament? So the New Testament has just five books of history, the four Gospels and Acts. And so everything that happens after Acts fits in somewhere in that story, mostly within the book of Acts, some of it afterward. But so in Acts, you can find 
hints of something that was going to happen or is happening in the city of Rome, which was quite a distance from Jerusalem. Way back at Pentecost, the Spirit comes. And why, why did, did the Spirit of God choose that particular festival that day to come and, and, and give this, this unique power to the 12 apostles where there was what looked like tongues of fire lighting upon them and they spoke in, in languages throughout the world that they had not known before and a crowd gathered? Well, if you read Acts 2, there's a list of locations throughout the Roman Empire where people came from to gather for Pentecost, and they were there not just for that strange moment when the Spirit came, but perhaps more importantly was what Peter said about it and that proclamation of the gospel, and thousands came to faith that first day. Among that group were people from Rome. It says that in Acts 2.10. In the 18th chapter, I mentioned Priscilla and Aquila. It tells us that um, the emperor during that time in, in the flow of Acts was Claudius. And Claudius kicked out the Jews from Rome. Um, I mentioned the population of, of Rome being uh, 400,000. There may have been as many as 40,000 Jews living in Rome in the first century. So that was no small number of people. And they may not have actually kicked all of them out, but for whatever reason, Claudius didn't like the Jews and said, that's it, you're out of here. Among the group that had to leave their town was two people named Priscilla and Aquila who Paul met in Corinth. And you can read about that in the 18th chapter. But so so there then you have this connection then by the time the letter to Romans is written, they were able to return to their home in Rome and contribute to the life of the church there, and as I mentioned a moment ago, to open up their home for one of these meeting places of of the church in that city. Um, In the 19th chapter, Paul specifically says he plans to visit Rome. In the 21st chapter, Paul is arrested in Jerusalem before he goes to Rome, and he appeals to Caesar. Now, that's a quite a long and involved story. That's chapter 21 through 23. But basically, Paul had planned to go to Rome by his own choice. By the time you get through the 21st, 22nd chapter of Acts, he's going to head to Rome, not by his own choice, but basically in chains. Now, he chose it in the sense that he was a Roman citizen and could appeal to Caesar. And that's what he did. So he kind of figured, well, I'll get a free ride to Rome now. Um, And it took a long time. The 24th to the 28th chapter, you have Paul appearing before governors on his way to Rome, sort of an appeal process to get to Caesar eventually. And then he's involved in a shipwreck on the way. The last 25%, one quarter of the entire book of Acts is that story. From the riot in Jerusalem until the end of Acts in the 28th chapter, when Paul is finally in Rome. And he's under house arrest there. Now, it was pretty good as arrest goes. It was was a home. He couldn't leave. There was a guard nearby. But he could have people come and go as he was there. 
and he would do more writing, and he would send letters to other churches, and they would bring them back, and he would find out how things are going. He would minister to people while he was there. He even ministered some to those in Caesar's household while he was there. And then Acts kind of ends abruptly. We're not sure, exactly sure why. We don't get the rest of the story of what happened with Paul, but it ends with him being in Rome. So there is your, your historical backdrop to Paul and Rome. And so I focused this morning um, on the word called. Back here in the, the first chapter of, of Romans that Darlene read just a moment ago. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. An apostle is one who would move forward the kingdom of God into new places. And obviously Paul did that as well as and probably better than anyone in all of history, taking this message of salvation through Jesus into new places. He was called to do that, and he understood his place in doing that. And then the second verse says, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and holy scriptures. He's called to uphold those scriptures. Paul wasn't throwing out his, his, his ancestry, his identity as a Jew. One of the reasons that God chose Paul. Originally, his name, of course, was Saul. Saul is the Hebrew name. Paul is the Greek name of the same person. And so he, he made that change to call himself Paul because he was called to reach the Gentile people. But he was as, as devout as any Jew could be. He himself was a Pharisee, and of course you know of the, 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 the animosity, disdain, and downright hatred that the Pharisees had toward Jesus during his ministry. And Paul was in that group, in that sect. He wasn't there with Jesus in those days, but around Jesus, but he certainly heard about him and set out to destroy him. And of course then we have the story of his, his conversion in um, Acts chapter 7, or 8, I think. So... We have this Paul that was both Jew, but he was also a citizen of Rome, which most Jews weren't. So you had a man, now hear this, he had a foot in both worlds. He was as Jewish as you could be, and no one could question his, his resume, his, his pedigree of, wow, here's a guy that knew the law, here's a guy that defended it, here's a guy that, he's a Pharisee, and yet... He spoke Greek. He's a Roman citizen. So who better to come in and take the message that originated from the Jews, from the Jewish Jesus and the Jewish apostles and disciples, and God's intent was to take that to all of the world beyond there, and this is exactly the right person to do it. And in doing so, he upheld the scriptures. He didn't throw them out. And he also, he was called to honor history revealed in those scriptures the third verse regarding his son who has to, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David that's important to his Jewish ancestry to his Jewish people 
It's important that Jesus is connected in the line of David, in that kingly line, to rightly take on one of his many titles as king. And so here is Paul not rejecting the scriptures, not rejecting the history, but saying, wow, look, this Jesus is actually fulfilling them, as Christ himself said about the law and the prophets. He was called to proclaim the resurrection of Christ, the fourth verse, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of, Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You can't miss the importance of proclaiming specifically and passionately that Jesus rose from the grave. You see that in Peter's um, sermon that I mentioned a moment ago from the second chapter of Acts. You see it in Peter's other um, sermons that when he addresses the people in Jerusalem uh, in those early weeks and months of the church, when he's under arrest, when he's before Sanhedrin, he comes back again and again to the resurrection of Jesus. And he pointed to the Jews in Jerusalem that were responsible for that death. And he kind of put it on all of them in a sense, but saying, this Jesus that you crucified is alive. So the resurrection of Jesus is not a small you know, sideshow. It isn't some little element that you can get to eventually. No, it's the center. It is the center of, of the hope that we have that Jesus is alive, not just that we celebrate once on a Sunday in, in the springtime of every year, but that it is a day-to-day life-giving truth that Jesus rose from the grave. And Paul is called to proclaim that truth, and he makes that clear in these early verses. He's called, as I mentioned, to reach the Gentiles in verse 5. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. This was not something that many of his Jewish brothers and sisters agreed with, even those who believed in Jesus. And you have, of course, also in Acts, the the resistance to take the Gospels of the Jews, even by Peter, and having to a, a great encounter with someone named Cornelius to have God convince him that, yes, this is for all people, and it's for all people equally. It's not as if you who are Jewish have found Jesus and now you are the upper echelon. And we'll let the Gentiles know about it too, but, but they're kind of like B Christians and we're A Christians. No, he would have none of that. Paul puts them on equal footing. And as I've shared before, and it always should be in the backdrop when we study the New Testament, this issue is, comes out of nearly every writing in the New Testament. The, the need and, and the, the desire from the heart of God that the message of salvation through his son Jesus goes to everyone equally including the Gentiles. And so the, the, the Jewish believers having trouble accepting that, having believing that, is the issue you see again and again in the New Testament. The book of Galatians is entirely about that, for example. 
Um, Hebrews as well brings that out frequently. And Paul's going to address that here in this letter of Romans. He's called to reach the Gentiles. Let's love them. Let's accept them as equal brothers and sisters in Christ. And called to tell everyone that you belong. What a beautiful message. Verse 6. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. How many ways does our world push people away, kick people to the edges? You're not part of us. You're, not, you're, you're one of them. Every day, in, in countless ways, people are divided away from one another. And there's, there's hierarch, hierarchies. There's, there's um, people being excluded rather than included. But a message from Jesus is that you all belong. And that is also a main theme of this entire letter. That you belong with Jesus. It's just a matter of believing it and accepting it as yours, this gift from God. You don't have to line up and obey a bunch of rules according to Moses. You don't have to you know, do X, Y, and Z in order to attain or earn that love. You can't. It's given to you. Accept it, believe it, and that you belong and that you matter. What a beautiful message. And then lastly, called to bring grace and peace, the seventh verse, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses that phrase in some form of it in almost all his letters at the beginning and or the end. Grace and peace to you. Those two words can get you through every day. Grace and peace. What a great prayer to say in the morning. Very briefly. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your peace. And help me to express that. To promote it. To bring it to others. Grace and peace. Grace, the, the, the love of God freely given to you in Jesus the Christ who loved you so much He died on the cross and rose again so that we could be with Him and, and have His Spirit live through us and know that His Spirit is there living through us. Grace given to you. You can't earn it. And the peace that that grace produces when your heart is grabbed by that grace, infiltrated. When it comes in, you realize, wow, I don't have to earn anymore. I don't have to pretend anymore. I don't have to work so hard. I don't have to worry. I have nothing to fear. I don't have to have anxiety. Why? Because of grace. And that grace has set my heart, my mind, and life at peace. And the enemy doesn't stand still when you, when you see those realities and you live and, and draw life from them and, and tries to make you doubt and tries to make you fear, tries to drag you back into that place of fearful anxiety. So that's why Paul comes back to those words again and again, grace and peace. That's what he's called to you to do. That's what we are called to do and to become. So I look forward to
learning together from this beautiful and powerful letter to the church in Rome. And may His grace and peace be seen, be embraced within us, and then lived out among us. Thank you, Father, for this letter. Thank you for these moments together this morning. May the one thing that you showed us, the most important thing, stay in our hearts, stay in our minds, and show us how to to respond to the truth that you've revealed. In Jesus' name, amen.